Today's episode of Grad School Confessional is brought to you by parents. Parents play an important role in grad school, probably why so many people dedicate their dissertations to them, which is ironic when you consider going to grad school is a bit like parenting. You really don't know what you're doing, and all your friends started doing it, so you said, hey, why not? But now, it's taking up precious years of your youth, costs more than you thought it would, both financially and mentally, and two to six years later, it still doesn't really do anything useful. But hey, if you're bored, you could always try for another. You're listening to Grad School Confessional, a podcast that explores the good, bad, and ugly of graduate school, directly from graduate students themselves. I'm your host, Dr. Yoaswe. From awkward supervisor interactions to reviewer two horror stories to convincing your parents why grad school was a good idea, we read out the confessions of graduate students from all over and chat about the realities of pursuing higher education. I'd like to welcome back my co-host and fellow parent-haver, Anna. Anna's a PhD candidate studying digital health, a field where researchers ask, how many hours of playing Candy Crush do you need to play before you get diabetes? 364. That's so specific. Same as the number of licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll. Fascinating. I'd also like to give a very warm welcome to our guest host today, Dr. Roberta Bigiginski. Hi. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for inviting me. So happy to be here. Roberta received her PhD at the Federal University of Rio Grande do Sul, where she studied exercise and pregnancy, a field where researchers ask, if your baby kicks inside of you, does that count as your calories burned? Oh, yes, it does. But they don't follow instructions or workouts very well. So it's not that useful. (laughs) Dumb babies. When they were born yesterday or something. Roberta, I'm very excited to have you on today's show as our second guest host, especially on today's episode, which is all about the first-generation academic experience. Perhaps we can start with a brief overview of your own academic journey. What do you do now? So now I am a research officer at Western University with the Faculty of Health Sciences. Great. And for... Our listeners, because I definitely know what it is. And I know Anna definitely, definitely also knows what that is. I have no clue. I have no clue either. What does a research officer do? Yeah, it's very nice that you asked. So many people don't actually know what it means. So a research officer, uh, as a research officer, I provide support to faculty, to grad students, masters and PhDs, and to postdoctoral scholars in their research capacity. So basically, I assist Everybody with grant writing, proposal writing, uh, budgeting development, development. I review each proposal. I check if it conforms to the university policies, to the criteria and guidelines, to the different competitions. And then as a side part, I also support uh, nominations for faculty members for major internal and external research awards. So it's a very broad portfolio. It's very fun, actually. Yeah, no, it sounds like you're you're basically doing as much research with everybody else without actually doing your own research. You know, you're kind of just managing their portfolios. It's very nice to actually provide feedback to faculty scholars. Yeah, no, I bet. I bet. (laughs) So now that we kind of know where you are here, what was your university journey like? Basically, I did physical education in school Mm -hmm. as an undergrad. And then I joined the master program in human movement sciences in South Brazil. Um, 
That was for two years. Then I jumped direct into my PhD in med school. So I did my PhD in medical sciences in the same university, but different department. And after that, I did one postdoc, a nine-month postdoc in the obstetrics and gynecology department mm -hmm. in the same university. And my second postdoc was here at Western University uh, in the School of Kinesiology. So that was a 2.5-year postdoctoral. Mm -hmm. And that was your most recent sort of postdoc, right? That took you basically right up to here. Yes, exactly. Yeah, nice. And when did you decide on grad school? Like, at what point did you realize that, you know, this next step of the university sort of career was what you wanted to do? Yeah, uh, so basically, I joined a research group as a volunteer in my second year undergrad in physical education. And in this research group, I started shadowing the data collection, helping with the grad students with their protocols. Uh, and at some point, it was very natural for me that I developed my own research question. Uh, and when I was collecting the data for my undergrad thesis that was with pregnancy and exercise, so it was a one-year follow-up study, mm -hmm. and it, I actually was very lucky. I published it, it in a peer-reviewed peer journal. I just knew uh, I wanted more time doing that, and I applied straight for a master's uh, with the same supervisor, and that's how my career started. Nice. Okay. So... Thinking back now, I guess, what do you feel was unique about your first-gen grad school experience, um, taking you know, parts of the fact that you are a first-gen immigrant, as well as the first in your family to do grad school? Yeah, other than my family saying, oh, good, now we have a doctor that can prescribe us medication. Oh, That's very my nice. nickel for every time my family was like, oh, Dr. Yoa, like, I don't, I don't do that. If you had a nickel for every time they said that, you'd have enough money to actually go to medical school <laughs> and become a real doctor so your mom could be proud. Hey, first of all, I am a real doctor, okay? Can you prescribe anything? I can prescribe... A taste of your own medicine. <laughs> 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 yeah, just kidding. But um, there are so many things that were unique. Uh, I really like to celebrate every single achievement. It doesn't matter how important this achievement is for me. But one thing that I hear a lot is actually how well I communicate my research topic to non-academic audience. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm pretty sure I developed this skill by having to explain to my parents over and over again and all the rest of my family what I was doing while yeah. in the grad school. So oh, yeah. this is oh, a skill. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, my parents don't really speak English fluently or like even in the 70th percentile of <laughs> fluency. Ouch. So I have to take like the stuff that I do with medical sociology and translate that into Russian. And I have trouble explaining it in English. And then you translate it into Russian. And my parents are like, we have no, yeah, we have no clue what you're doing. <laughs> like, are you going to get paid? Yeah, exactly. At the end of the day, yeah. As an example, then, my mom is a retired seamstress, and my dad is a retired bank, like a security in a bank. So oh, this is wow. the level of understanding we're having here. <laughs> and then I have to tell them that I do research with exercise and pregnancy. They yeah. start right away, what is research? <laughs> so that's the level. Imagine you, the pregnant woman is like a vault right? And inside the baby is the money in the vault. And you want to make sure the vault is very strong. Okay, so I'm just going to interrupt right now. Nobody ever described pregnancy like that. That's terrifying. I'm trying to relate, man. To pregnancy. <laughs> and no, exercise. Please. 
So when you're running after the bank robbers, that's exercise and pregnant. I don't know. What was the last time you were pregnant, yo? <laughs> oh boy, I'm getting myself into trouble here. Anyway, today's episode, we have a bunch of stories that I'm excited for us to dig into. You know, some deal with first generation immigrants as well, but some are just, I mean, all of them are just first generation grad students. And so our first story comes from a first generation grad student who details the thrill and hardships involved with being the first in their family to pursue grad school. They write, It's an exhilarating feeling being the first. First place, first love, first person to go to university and graduate school. However, unlike the two formers, the latter is a much more different and difficult journey than I imagined. Being the first in my family to go and finish university, it didn't make sense to my immigrant parents to pursue further schooling. They fully expected me to have a job right after university. I could not clearly explain that I like research and learning and want to spend more of my time doing it. I imagined that I would succeed easily, like I did in my undergraduate thesis, and find a job quickly after. But that was not the case. I struggle every day with imposter syndrome. How can I succeed? What do I need to do? And the pending doom that I will never find a job in the current job market. I had so many unexpected barriers suddenly come up in the most inconvenient time. Publisher parish, the cutthroat environment of those in the same niche area, the isolation and strain of relationships, working all day, and having no fun time. The first. It's amazing to be first, but it's hard to tread on an unknown road. But yeah, it can be hard to explain a lot of the backward stuff that happens in academia. I was going to say, this was, this thread was going around Twitter like a week ago of like people trying to explain to their parents that they actually have to pay to get their stuff published. And like, <laughs> you don't get, and it's not a small sum. Like, it is thousands, thousands of, dollars. of dollars. Yeah. And my parents are like, why are you doing this? This seems like a scam. <laughs> And what about the fact that you have to explain to your parents that when you publish something, it's not the newspaper, yeah. it's not the magazine that they can buy in the grocery store. It's actually a scientific journal. They don't have access. Yeah. And none of the friends have access. And when a friend of yours just publish a blurb in the local news newspaper, and they have much more credit than what you did for your yeah. own research. Oh, 100%. 100%. Like, you know, even if you were to publish in English, the fact that this language of science is so inaccessible, right? To just people outside of it, it's hard. It's hard for them to see the value in it outside of it just being so complex that it must be important. Okay, in their defense, the longer I stay in academia, the more I'm starting to fail to see the importance in it. <laughs> when I publish something, yeah. like 20 other people in my field read it, and you're like, yeah, success, I've changed <laughs> nothing. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. And I also agree too, it's with this person's story, like doing a PhD or, you know, even a master's as a first-gen academic can be a very isolating experience as well, right? Um, it's hard to figure out all this stuff on your own and, and kind of make these mistakes on your own. Yeah. And when you actually make those mistakes and you want to talk about it and you want to overcome this, who are, do you look for? Do you have like... A sibling do you have uh, yeah. like a cousin that went through the same thing and you want to talk and you want to cry you don't want to cry to your supervisor you don't want to cry with your lab peers, yeah, like yeah. your lab mates you want to cuddle with somebody who can understand your struggles 
like you and and Anna. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> See, we should cuddle more. <laughs> Otherwise, that's not gonna happen. No, no. Okay, I didn't think so. No touching. <laughs> but yeah, I think you raise a really good point, Roberta. That I was just thinking of is it, when you have these kind of strong emotions in grad school, it's hard to go to your supervisor, you know, and it's hard to go to your lab mates because. Everyone kind of just expects that you've got it together. Like, that's why you're here. That's why you know what you're doing. And this imposter syndrome of like, what am I doing here? Everyone else seems to know what they're doing and I don't. It's it's very, very common. And you actually, when you try to figure out why you're doing, who do you ask for? For the money? No, not it's for the money. Definitely <laughs> and sometimes yeah. you can actually think that is for the money, but throughout your journey, you figure out really fast. It's yeah. like, no, it's not about it. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> okay. I thought when I heard that, you know, in a tier one university in Canada, you know, you get paid between like 110 and 120 grand. I was like, that is so sweet. And now actually like putting in the work and knowing how many hours it is, oh, I was God. like, that's actually kind of like minimum wage or below. <laughs> like, mm, yeah. seems like a scam. <laughs> really though, really. Like I haven't talked to any new faculty member in the last you know who's like been hired in the last you know five years where they have told me like yeah i actually have like a tremendous work-life balance and i'm just like i'm able to just keep my work at work and like no it doesn't happen it's impossible no right? their lives are falling apart yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely but you know i think too there's this kind of almost ironic pressure from parents because it's like university at the undergraduate level is very much emphasized, right? Like you, we came here so that you can get an education and it's really important to get it, but then it stops there. You do the education to get the job. And beyond that, why would you want to keep learning or keep like researching like to what end, right? What is it? What is it for? Okay. But like, I don't think it's, why would you keep learning and researching? Was it okay, for, I think for it's no more money. like, yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> like, why would you keep doing this for free? <laughs> I absolutely agree yeah. with this point. And uh, my master's actually, I did absolutely just for the fun. I was having so much fun in my undergrad thesis and I was like, no, 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 I need to extend that. I, I need a little bit more fun. And I did my master's. I was very lucky lucky enough and I was very privileged that my grad studies were in a public university so I didn't pay one single cent for my entire back wow. grad school my grad studies yeah. and that's what kept me going because I didn't have to pay for it but at yeah. some point by the end of my master's potentially late first year of my PhD I realized all my friends who did high school with me, they were making loads of money and all my friends from yeah. the university too. And I was like, <laughs> way more money. What am I still yeah. doing? <laughs> I think too, for me, it was continuing to do my master's because like, okay, well, I want to get into med school. And it seems like this kind of, you know, way to get into this job that again, I feel I was very much encouraged to go into because of the prestige, but also the money and the security. And I think when we have this idea, or at the very least, my parents had an idea of what it meant to be successful as a first-gen immigrant, it was you either have lawyer, doctor, engineer, you know, that was it. And then I was like, maybe I can't be an MD, but I could still be a doctor. And like, I think I got out with the technicality. And, and your mom was like, I guess this is a participation <laughs> ribbon. <laughs> wow, participation <laughs> ribbon. I kid. You worked hard. You, you, you want it sometimes. <laughs> it was touch and go for a few years. Yeah. Yeah. I have, uh, again, I have to admit that I 
I still don't know what my parents consider as metrics of success for grad school. I have no idea what they are thinking about this um, mm -hmm. because grad school changes so much for them. The idea of grad school at some point I, I'm telling them, oh, I'm I'm now an MSc. And then two years later, no, 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 I'm now a doctor. I have a PhD. And then four years later, no, 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 I. I'm doing a postdoc. What is a postdoc? Are you still studying? No, no, no. I'm not a student anymore. I have a job. A postdoc is a job that pays nothing, yeah. <laughs> but it's still a job. So it's difficult for them to keep to keep up and say, okay, when are you actually getting a job? Yeah, yeah, exactly. When are you going to start contributing <laughs> to like society? <laughs> but I do in my own small way. <laughs> Our next story deals with a similar experience where a first-generation grad student recounts their experience also as a first-generation immigrant. They write, Once, when I was a kid, my dad told me that I would become a doctor someday. Back where I'm from, a small town in Brazil, it was very unlikely that I would indeed become any kind of doctor. My dad had almost no formal schooling, and he had to start working very young, and the same can be said about my mom. The day I defended my PhD in Canada, some 7,000 kilometers away from my hometown, I thought back to that conversation. I was alone in my apartment after I'd passed my defense, reflecting upon my journey until then. That's when I realized that that day was by far the most important day of my life. Not because I'd become a PhD, but because I knew my dad would have been proud of me if he were alive to see it. So I guess that makes me a first-generation academic. But I'm also a first-generation many things. First-generation to finish high school, attend university, board a plane, travel outside my home country, learn English, and become a PhD. Because of such a unique background, this whole notion of being the first to do many things also means that I have never had an example of success in my personal life which to follow. So there was really no one for whom I could learn, get advice from, rely upon, or simply look up to when things got difficult. To me, the biggest challenge of being a first-generation academic and a first-generation immigrant is the fear of failure. Failures carry a heavier weight when you know it will cost you a lot. It almost feels like you must be successful now so that others can follow the path you have laid down. You become the example to be followed. So in the face of adversity, you just need to be that much stronger, hopeful, and resilient. But that is unbelievably tiring at times. I almost resignate to this, this story. Yeah. When, when you're like reading, I was like, oh, did I write that? <laughs> <laughs> totally unintentional. <laughs> There's a lot of really great PhDs coming out of Brazil. <laughs> I feel like you'd be able to speak to this a lot more, Roberta. You know, obviously having come from a different country into Canada and having to kind of uh, navigate getting a career here, you know, with staying within academia. I know that to draw a comparison to a lot of medical professionals and healthcare professionals, they have their medical degree in the country they're from. And when they come here, it's not recognized the same way, right? It's not certified. And so you you know, if I had a nickel for every time I had an Uber driver who was a medical doctor in the country that they were, came from, you know, it's just crazy to see that disparity. It's, it's absolutely the same. I was a fitness professional, full-time, working the gym 40 hours per, per week, and arrived here, jumped directly into research, never taught in the gym, never coached in a gym. It's absolutely right. So in your opinion, then, how can we support first-generation immigrants and first-generation academics? Wow, you! I'm so happy with this question. This is an amazing question. Thank I you. just feel that just by 
offering support and empathy is a great, great help. Um, so many times I didn't understand the process, like easy, easy things. Like what is a paper? I had no clue what is a paper or what is a PhD ethics? Ethics what? <laughs> like what that means. But I was feeling ashamed of asking, asking whom? As a master's, should I ask the PhD in the lab? Should I ask another master? Should I ask my my supervisor and then my supervisor will think that I'm stupid. Mm -hmm. um, and as a first generation immigrant, everything gets 10 times worse because we're thinking about the same questions in another yeah, language. Yeah, so am I asking the same, like in the correct way? Am I saying it in the, the correct way? Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to ask you, and my experience has been, so I, my parents brought me to Canada when I was 11. So I'm kind of like, technically first gen um but i also was fairly young and i think with both of us our english is just like we can pass as native speakers and so a lot of the times people kind of ignore that you are first generation immigrant and then when you remind them any fault within like the language gets attributed to the fact that you are an immigrant so a lot of times with my writing i get complimented on my writing but the moment I remind somebody that English is my third language, they're like, oh, like you have a lot of trouble with your grammar and you like misplace your commas everywhere. Mm. And I'm just wondering, like, has that ever like happened to you? Yeah, people in Canada are very nice to me. Uh, of course, I had a, an, an outstanding supervisor during my postdoc and she was always correcting my grammar, but in a way that I, I was learning with mm -hmm. it, not in a way that I was feeling ashamed of my grammar mistakes, but I was always learning through this process. And I always told my friends, and I was very, always very open to say, if I make a mistake that is, if I say something that is completely wrong, just let me know right away so yeah. I'll have it in my mind. Yeah. But what people usually don't realize or they don't think about it is, how tired we always feel as immigrants speaking in another language all the time. So I just feel that I'm always tired. My brain is always tired because it's always mm -hmm. working very high gear. And a meeting at 7 p.m., for example, for me is killing me because I, I cannot think anymore. I just mm -hmm. don't have the energy and I just want to go to bed to sleep. And sometimes people can think, oh, she's just lazy. She doesn't mm -hmm. want to work. But no, I, I literally have no energy anymore like my yeah. brain is dead and i think so many first gen immigrants or so many pe people out there in academics uh, in, in academia doing research in the second or sometimes third languages it, it's very tiring it's yeah. very tiring yeah, i think yeah. that's a great point i wanted to comment on something that you said roberta where you had said we need to be doing more you know we need to be supporting them and showing empathy and i think one of the ways that Anna, you've done this is through this peer support thing that you're doing, right? Like your peer support program is basically where you're getting matched up with these you know, younger, um, or I should say newer uh, mm -hmm. graduate students and kind of guiding them through a bit of this process. Yeah. And some of these students are international students. And so there's the added kind of hurdle of getting a student visa and moving to a completely different country. And at the same time, trying to navigate graduate school, which is like hard enough as it is. And I don't think I was ever as aware of how little a lot of the programs, including my own program, does to support incoming students in terms of the administrative 
tasks until I started doing this. And I kind of like suppressed a lot of these memories of like being confused and not knowing like when things were due for like scholarships and whatever. Mm-hmm. And then now that I'm kind of talking to people who are incoming students and they're dealing with that, I was like, oh, I didn't have support for this either. <laughs> like, yeah. here you go. Here's all the stuff I've accumulated over the years. And I'm just like going to give you all of these resources. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And and like even supports, uh, I had support. I did part of my PhD here at Western. I did uh, nine months of my PhD here and I was attending classes and taking notes in English. It's awful. And I had (laughs) like, it's really awful. Like it's awful. So I had two amazing master's students in the lab taking the course with me and they were just offering me their notes after the class. So I could not copy, but take a look if I didn't miss anything or if I actually, sometimes my brain was just blank for Mm. two minutes and then I missed an entire chunk of the explanation. So I could go back to their notes and say, oh yeah, I actually missed this. This type of support was incredible because it helped me with my exams and at the end, right? Yeah. And I think an important part that you're both raising here is that, you know, Roberta, you actually had other students, your peers help you out. And on a, obviously this program is very much based on peer support, right? Mm-hmm. But like, what role does the university, like, what do they need to be doing? You know, because I feel like as the institution where you are at, they have this vested interest in making sure that all their graduate students succeed. Yeah, uh, I have to admit that I had lots of support uh, as an international here in Canada. Mm. Uh, But my most important support was when the university created a group of Brazilians in WhatsApp. (laughs) And that was the most important support. They were like, okay, here's a group of Brazilians talk to them yeah, and yeah. and of course like I'm, I'm joking but I'm not uh, this group was incredibly uh, supportive and I'm, I'm still in this group and I support the incoming Brazilians that are uh, come to Canada are coming to Canada to study to complete their studies but um, there's an international department or in, sometimes an international center in every university so I strongly suggest that the very first step is to walk the student there, take the student by the hand and, okay, let me introduce you to somebody in this department because here's your best friend. And this is very, very useful for incoming immigrants. Mm-hmm. No, that's good advice. Man, I wish they had that for Ukrainians. Although I feel like all of the like old Eastern Bloc kids are just like in the engineering department <laughs> or in Comsci and I'd be like, Ivan, we don't speak the same language anymore. You speak the language of numbers and I speak the language of the people. The people. I don't know. I don't know what my research is. Yeah. And most of them will be very introverts and not like, don't talk to me. I don't want to talk to anybody, right? So See, it's the- that's the misconception about like engineering and comp sci kids. They're super sociable, but they like communicate on a level that we mere mortals can't comprehend, you know? Like like a nerd or just like in something else? <laughs> like it's like nerd squared. They're they're the next step of evolution. <laughs> oh, I don't I don't think I like where that's going. <laughs> uh, this next story comes from a first gen academic whose parents did what parents do: give advice. Unfortunately, not having a parent in academia means explaining that things in higher ed aren't always the way they seem on the outside. They write. I was, slash am, a first-gen graduate student, slash academic. My dad was a public school teacher and my mom a school nurse. 
so obviously education was highly valued in my household. I remember fondly how no one in my family had any understanding whatsoever of the academic job market, meaning I got all sorts of advice in the avenue of why don't you just call up the dean slash president slash department head and ask if they're hiring. But anyway, I was extremely lucky in that I did find an academic job at a small public university in my last year of graduate school. I started my job in the same month that I defended my dissertation and before my degree had actually been fully conferred, so I was technically still a grad student when this happened. I was so unbelievably broke when I started work. Because I got offered the job in December and I didn't start until September, I quit all of my adjuncting jobs, I was teaching at three schools, so that I could spend all my time writing my dissertation to finish in time. During that period, my car's transmission went bad and reverse stopped working. I continued to drive it for five months like that, only parking in lots where I knew I could pull in and out of a space going straight. I was so broke, I couldn't buy any new clothes for my new position. So after the first two or three weeks of wearing jeans, five-year-old Converse All-Stars, and a plaid button-down over t-shirts, the department chair informed me that, quote unquote, you're not a graduate student anymore and you should really stop dressing like one. And then I died. End of story. Wow. So, so many things about this story that I just like, I love, okay? The fact that you're being told by someone that like, you got to start dressing better. The fact that this car is like the reverse just no longer works. So it's just like driving around. There's no three point turns. There's no turns. It's just, everything is just a circle. <laughs> a lot of planning you're driving, eh? <laughs> okay. But like, that's exactly, okay. Not exactly. But that happened to us when we were like, before we left for Yoa's postdoc, our car was a 1998 Toyota Camry. Her name was Cammy, and her muffler fell off. So she sounded like a race car going at 30 kilometers an hour. And we would slink back behind the dashboard and just pray that people wouldn't look at us. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. But like, I think it's such a reality of the grad school, right? And obviously not just for first gen academics, but I think it's almost harder that way because you know, you're working three adjuncting jobs or you're working a part-time job or you're concerned that like, if you don't find a job right away, then you don't have the money to tide you over. You don't have the family to support you, right? Yeah, my dad actually told me when I uh, started my undergrad studies is, well, you don't want to find a stable job after high school. You want to pursue education, high-end high education. Public school it is. Like, don't count on me. I don't yeah, have money to pay your yeah. studies. If you want to pay your studies, you have to work. Uh, but I was... I was going to be working and doing undergrad, right? And yeah. during my grad, I was actually afraid of that. I was like, how can I stop working it, during my, my grad studies? I cannot do that. I can, and I was like 20-something years. Like, I, I need to pay my own bills, right? I need to pay for my own parties and my <laughs> own booze and, and everything my else. I cannot do okay, I love yeah. <laughs> I, I cannot Literally, I cannot ask my parents to pay for that anymore when you're twenty something years. <laughs> so I was I was working in, in the gym yeah. as much as I could and and pursuing my grad studies as well. So yeah. Did you find it was different coming to Canada for your postdoc, like having that as your quote unquote job, or was it still very like I'm still kind of afraid here that I'm not going to find a job and I'm not going to stay here? Oh, absolutely! Like when I. My contract as a postdoc was to end 
this month, November 2021. Mm -hmm. That was the last month of my contract. December last year, mm -hmm. so about a year ago, I was already waking up at 4 a.m. thinking, now what? Like yeah. one year before my contract was over, was about to end, I was already freaking out saying, I need to find a job. And what am I going to do? Like I was applying for jobs. I applied for 10 tenure track positions in Canada. Yeah. Like going from British Columbia to Halifax, Saskatchewan, yeah. every, everything, couldn't couldn't land any tenure track position. And suddenly this amazing research officer position came and I'm very happy, very, very happy with everything that happened. But I was freaking out. I was absolutely wow. freaking out thinking, will I go back to Brazil? Will I go back to work at the gym? Will I continue pursuing uh, my education should I do another postdoc what should I do yeah yeah exactly exactly okay that's terrifying I'm supposed to defend in like less than six months and listening to you talk about looking for work I'm just like hyperventilating on the DL <laughs> you're fine you're fine <laughs> <laughs> just patting your head <laughs> like, need to lie down on the floor you know <laughs> yeah but I find too because I obviously um, I'm in a postdoc now, but I remember because you kind of apply for these postdoc positions and these jobs in the last year of your PhD, right? And so I remember applying for these jobs and being like, you know, uh, I'll apply for these scholarships and I'll hear back and something will come up. And then just like having thing after thing come back and being like, we regret to inform you. And unfortunately, and now I'm spending, you know, what is now full blown COVID with no job prospects, mm -hmm. you know, so we're supposed to move. So we already handed in our, like, uh, what do you call it? Like our, our, I don't want to live here anymore letter. And then yeah, we will vacate the premises. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then, and then basically I'm like three months away from that. Now I'm like, what are we going to do? So, you know, in a lot of ways, I think being able to pursue academia is a very privileged, um, opportunity, right. And it, unless you get really lucky, which it sounds like you have in many ways, Roberta, it's it's a very harsh wake up call. Yes, yes, it is. And to pursue a job, especially a job in academia as an immigrant, there's a lot and lots of barriers. Especially because when you when you you get the job ad, usually it's the first line on the top. Priority will be given to permanent residents or citizens. Yeah. So you're or you're already out of the competition yeah. without even start. And I understand it's all about the hiring process. There's lots going on that they need to be sure this person is eligible, mm -hmm. right? In Canada, it's, it's potentially eligible for a contract in Canada. But this already cuts you off for so many good opportunities, mm -hmm. and it, it, it's really bad. Yeah, well, I actually didn't even think of that because, you know, obviously we're both uh, citizens. But, yeah, I can imagine that that would be very disheartening to see that. Yeah. yeah, and each application takes a lot of time. Wow. It doesn't matter if you're like a master's applying for a PhD or a PhD applying for a postdoc or applying for any jobs. Like I remember part of the story you don't know is when I was in Brazil finishing my PhD and applying to come to Canada for my postdoc here, I had to, I only had one opportunity, two opportunities as a postdoc fellowships to apply. Mm -hmm. One is Banting, who's extremely privileged mm -hmm. uh, postdoc fellowship. You probably know that. Yep. Uh, I applied for that three years in a row, never got it. Mm -hmm. And then I applied for other opportunities. In total, I applied 10 times. Wow. 10 times in three years. So can you imagine the uh, time 
the amount of time I spent doing that, every single application and getting back. Oh, sorry yeah. to hear. Sorry to inform you of that. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And we call, you know, I say luck, but obviously there's a huge element of like hard work, you know, that's gone into it. That's very, that's a very real reality, I think, as a first gen immigrant. Yeah. And also, I think if you're an international student coming in for a postdoc or coming in for a doctoral program, there is only a small number of awards that are reserved mm -hmm. for international students. So I know that in my department, out of the provincial, all the provincial awards for graduate students, only two are available for international students. Wow. Only yeah. Two. So the competition is insane, yeah. way more than it is for domestic students. And that is incredibly unfair, yeah. honestly. Yeah, right. Our last story is told by a first-gen academic whose blue-collar upbringing caused some internal tension when trying to fit into the ivory tower of academia. They write, I am a first-generation scholar. Neither of my parents did any university whatsoever, and my grandparents didn't go further than middle school. Since I was a kid, I knew that I was going to be either a priest or a teacher, so it was natural that I was going into either the seminary or to university. And when I got a girlfriend in high school, that pretty much put a nail in the coffin against becoming a priest. My parents were always very supportive and proud of me. In fact, when I was a kid, my dad had me work for him for a summer, digging septic systems in the heat to motivate me to go to school. In his words, I bet you'll stay in school now, won't you? I think the hardest part about being a grad student and an academic in general, from a humble blue collar background, is the duality that I'm forced to live in. I frequently ask myself whether or not I belong in academia. For example, I always tell the truth to the best of my ability, despite whether or not it is convenient. That often doesn't sit well with an academic culture. Having to censor myself when I disagree with something is really hard when I've been raised by a father who would more than happily tell you, in very colorful language, exactly what your inadequacies were that day. Despite this difference in culture, I am grateful that my parents taught me everything I needed to succeed. That is, hard work, truth, and faith are key to overcoming any barrier. Yeah, man, parents tell it like it is. Like my mom, every time I call her, my mom insists on telling me exactly what I should be doing next. It's like, oh, mom, I'm applying for jobs. Like, okay, you need to do this. Put together your resume and your CV and make sure you apply to everything, okay? And ask for reference, good reference. <laughs> like, mom, <laughs> I wasn't going to do any of that, but I guess now that you've mentioned it. That is that is the international like immigrant experience <laughs> that Yoa and I just shared, despite being from completely different countries yeah. both of our moms like <laughs> on cue will tell us exactly how to apply for academic jobs yeah so like uh my mom is extremely religious extremely religious and yeah. as brazil right we have vast majority yeah, the, of the population the guy with the standing on the statue and the tea and the... yes the christo Redentor. Yeah. <laughs> yes so uh every time i tell my mom i'm i'm going to do this i'm going to apply for this job i'm going to do this something that i'm planning in academia she always tells me i'm going to pray for you everything will be fine I'm like yeah mom but please pray for me but for that i still need to write a full application i still have to work in the background i cannot be like go, okay you prayed i'm going to sleep like that doesn't work right <laughs> oh that's sweet i yeah. wish like i wish my parents would pray for me my mom just tells me about how i'm not going to get the job yeah your mom is very like that attitude it's just like well 
someone else will probably get it, but you know, try anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's the Eastern European, I want to say tough love, but I'm struggling to find the love. <laughs> <laughs> that comes after you're successful when they want money from you. <laughs> ah, yes, there it is. <laughs> um, but I also get it too, like, you know, my dad, despite, um, you know, getting his master's here, he does have, I would say, a very blue collar job, like he works with his hands all day. And you know, I remember there was a certain point where I was either in my master's just finishing it or or in my PhD very early on, where my dad had told me when I visited home one day, I don't think you should do a PhD. He didn't say that exactly, but he was like, you need to get a real job. You need to get a job with skills that is practical, that will make you money. And I remember thinking like, but you don't know what it is that I do. Like, I would say PhDs have tremendous transferable skills right? Communication and writing and reading and interpreting and just reading. Okay. Science is a language unto itself. Let's be real. Uh, I would say, honestly, our biggest uh, transferable skill is public speaking because mm -hmm. most people are terrified of doing it. And I think for us, it's like, well, that's a Tuesday, like a class, yeah, a a class of a thousand students. Let's go. Yeah. I had my, my dad actually had um, twice came to my desk at home and dropped in at a job post. Like, here's the position in a bank. Like, <laughs> go apply for that. I was like, Dad, I'm doing my PhD. Like, or I'm doing my master's. Yeah. I'm very not interested in working in a bank, which is a very nice job, stable job. You have the nine to five, yeah, and you have your yeah. paycheck at the end of the month. It's completely different from academia. But my dad was yeah, like pushing, yeah. please, can you please apply to this job and consider it? It was like, nope not applying so how is their attitude changed now now that you have the research officer position he still doesn't has you he doesn't understand what i do <laughs> so yeah that one is a very tough one to to explain like oh dad i support grant writing like what is grant writing what is yeah. that like, he doesn't know but he he knows that I can, I I have the money right now and to yeah. support myself, so he can actually see the money coming right now. Yeah. So he can see that I, I you know like dress myself better and I have a, a <laughs> more more resources around me. See, that's uh, it. That's it. The universal language it isn't English and it isn't uh, uh, science. It's it's money. money. Everyone understands money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What yeah. is it that you do? I make this much money. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. Real job. <laughs> And the fact that it, making money in Canadian dollars, which is 4.2 times more than Brazilian yeah, guys, yeah, exactly. that's even more interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. One thing about this story that I really like, um, it's just that this person had to pick between priesthood and university. And like just very early on, they're like, yeah, celibacy is not for me. <laughs> Honestly, in hindsight, I'm just like listening to the story. I'm like, Becoming a nun would have been like a lot less stressful than what I'm doing right now. It's <laughs> kind of like weighing your pros yeah, and cons. No offense taken, Dory. <laughs> Think about all the deadlines. <laughs> You'll never have any deadlines. Yeah, I can still, I mean, yeah, still God, have God doesn't have a deadline. I mean, there's one deadline, but like. Yeah, but we don't know has. when it's coming. Yeah, you don't know when it's coming. <laughs> and actually, nuns live for a crazy long amount of time. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And they have like lower rates of like cancer and alzheimer's and dementia yeah, yeah. they gotta figure it out man i know <laughs> not like it's academics Ugh. no i feel like i'm gonna like i'm like working myself into a stroke any day now <laughs> i'm gonna implode yeah um i was gonna say I, I from this story i can i think it highlights 
how advantageous it would be to have a parent in academia. Like if you had someone who already knew not just like the process, but then at the end of it could be like, hey, I know these people. Why don't you like talk to this person? Why don't you talk to this person? Like that network is is probably very crucial. Yeah, I had a, a boss at the gym. She used to tell me uh, success is not about what you do, it's about who you know. Absolutely. And this yeah. is absolutely true in every single day of my career, uh, is, as a fitness professional career or academic career, mm-hmm. is how do you actually expand your network? The mm-hmm. faster you expand your network, the more, the higher the chances for you to be successful in whatever you want to pursue. You want to pursue a, a position in industry. It's also very, very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I like, you know, I, as someone who got their master's through nepotism and then has now slowly been climbing the nepotism ladder <laughs> just to get a job, like, I, I feel very privileged in that sense. Like, I'm let's very go, well aware. Let's go nepotism. Let's push this bad boy oh, over the finish line. <laughs> <laughs> and I've just been, like, along for the ride as a backpack. No, I mean, our, our next sort of, like, funding opportunity, that's been all you, right? I mean, and also the people who are willing to fund us. Yeah, that's, I guess that's fair. But yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more, Roberta. I think that also presents as a barrier for a lot of first-gen academics because, you know, not only do you have to know these people, but like the story kind of says, you got to speak that language. You got to be able to basically schmooze, right? Yeah. Um, and there's the other part of uh, knowing ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. So something happened to me uh, when I was writing my CVs. People were asking me, okay, how many awards do you have? And it's like, awards? What is the awards? Awards of what? Of what? I have no clue what you're talking about. And I think if you have somebody in your family when you're an undergrad telling you, you need to do volunteering yeah. or you need to pursue this award of whatever, 3MT uh, award, or you yeah. need to get something, you know, like tiny, but that will help you with your master's. Yeah. And when you're in your master's, you need this, this, this for your PhD. I think that's extremely helpful. Yeah, yeah. Roberta, thank you for reminding me. I need to apply for the travel award. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're welcome. Feel free to contact me and I can help you with that. <laughs> uh, first-generation academics are a lot of things. Sometimes immigrants, sometimes underprivileged, sometimes lucky. But all first-gen academics share a common thread. They're the first in their family to glimpse and experience the culture of academia and the vast environment of knowledge and privilege that comes with it. This often makes it harder for first-gen academics to simply do the same job as everyone around them or be afforded the same sense of respect or security. But as a function of these diverse backgrounds, first-gen academics introduce a vital and much-needed breath of fresh air into the academy. You've been listening to Grad School Confessional. I'm Dr. Yoasue. Special thanks again to my co-host, Anna, and our guest host, Roberta. Roberta, just as we end our research papers, do you have any final acknowledgements or conflicts of interest you'd like to disclose today? Oh, conflict of interest, so many. (laughs) But let's just go with the acknowledgements. Uh, I just want to send a big shout out to my parents. Unfortunately, they will not understand anything that I'm saying in English, so it's okay. I'll have to translate that to them. (laughs) And a big shout out to everybody out there who cares, actually, who actually cares about helping first-gen academics. Big, fat thank you for everybody. Amazing. (laughs) If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes so that others can benefit from our mediocre advice. Please also share us with your social network and follow us on Twitter at GS Confessional. And if you have a confession you'd like to make, 
please use the anonymous link in the description or email thegradschoolconfessional at gmail.com. We're waiting for your funny, interesting, or controversial confessions. Until next time, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Principal Investigator, Amen. It is a real job, Mom, okay? It is a real job. It I is, Mom. Money, I swear. <laughs>